All right. Well, thank you for coming this morning. I had to ask a couple of people what time Sunday school exactly started. I just kind of wander in and wander out and don't pay attention to these things. Um, and really have only been to this Sunday school class, I think, three times. Uh, we came, Nina and I came, um, just trying to, once we moved back, visit all the Sunday school classes. And then uh, and then uh, the next thing I know, they had asked uh, me and Tim to, uh, to team teach um, this class. So my name is Chris Brackett. And I have uh, been connected to faith community for about 25 years, a little bit over that, as a missionary, uh, started visiting 25 years ago. And we um, uh, moved back here to the States in July. And I just want to clarify a couple of things. I am not retired. Uh, People ask me, what do you do? Uh, And someone asked me this past week, are you retired? And I'm like, no, I've got lots of work, uh, work that I love, work that I enjoy, but uh, work that I'm doing here in the States, but still working as a full-time missionary supported by Grace Community Church out in California, but living here in Georgia. So we moved my in-laws, Gene and Dina, here a couple of years ago, and uh, when it became clear that uh, we were going to come back to the States and transition some things on the field and, and serve them... Um, we knew we weren't. We couldn't go back to California, and we didn't, frankly, want to go back to California. Uh, I spent my six years in seminary there. It was wonderful, but I would not want to live there. I love visiting there. Um, and so, yes. So I know there's a few here, right? So, um, but so my name's Chris Brackett, and um, served in Croatia for 25 years. And still serving there, I'm still working with uh, uh, MDiv program in Europe for our training centers. We we were one of 16, or I guess 18 now, training centers throughout the world in Croatia. And we have the most of our training centers in Europe. And together in Europe, we've put together an MDiv program for the students that just continue to, to move forward. And then they come back typically and teach in the different training centers in Croatia, in Czech Republic, um, in, or will maybe be crucial in setting up church, uh, church-based training centers in places like France. Uh, we have a training center in Germany that's kind of our head office. So I do that, um, helping those schools um, kind of reach. An in- it's kind of like an internal accreditation process because we have training centers in so many different countries uh, there's no way we could be accredited. Individual schools are accredited in their individual countries. Uh, some are, not many. But um, we want to have best practices, good policies in place, and so we have this internal uh, accreditation process that I'm helping the schools in Europe do. So I oversee the MDiv program, I'm helping the schools with their accreditation, and I still teach and uh, go back to Croatia. So I've already been back to Croatia twice since November or since July. And uh, we'll go back at the end of the month with Nina uh, to Poland and then to Croatia. So traveling a lot, but um, very, very glad to be here at Faith Community Church, which is a church that uh, in God's providence was really um, probably the last church in Georgia to uh, join our support team. We had visited churches all around Atlanta, so we have churches that support us in uh, Duluth and Peachtree City and uh, Dawsonville, Conyers. Uh, Walton County, um, but uh, faith kind of came along late in that process. But when they did come, they came <laughs> full bore, 
and have been very, very involved in our ministry, as you guys know, um, over the last 20 years. And was the closest church to my parents who lived in Adairsville. Um, and so it was, uh, there was a period of uh, a year when my mom was sick with cancer and then my dad had multiple surgeries. And we came to the States thinking we'd be here for three weeks and ended up being here for 13 months. And that was the first time my girls had ever gone to the same church two Sundays in a row in America and uh, got involved in youth group. And, uh, and that was just another step in the process of God knitting our hearts together. So we're delighted to be here at Faith Community Church. Uh, Shane has asked me to help out uh, in this Sunday school class. Um, and the elders would like me to help uh, kind of uh, work toward connecting uh, missionary prayer needs, especially communicating between the missionaries and the church. So I'm thinking through how to do that. Um, but thankfully, I know almost all the missionaries or have met uh, some since then, but work already with them, their colleagues and friends, uh, especially those in Europe. So very thankful that um, I can serve the church in that way as well. And so with that, I'd like to pray and we'll get started and uh, kind of talk to you about what we're going to try to accomplish today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for your kindness and your goodness to us. We thank you for your care for us, and we thank you for the privilege of being part of your church, your body here in um, Woodstock. We thank you for uh, this day when we remember the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and even would ask that you would prepare our hearts as we think about uh, celebrating uh, the Lord's table, that you would help us to uh, purify ourselves, examine our hearts, and prepare for this uh, uh, common uh, act of communion together uh, with one another and with uh, with Christ as we remember his sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us insight into this uh, wonderful book of Galatians, a significant book of Galatians, and help me to communicate uh, that which uh, will, I believe, help us understand this uh, this book even better. We pray and uh, would just ask that you would be with our missionaries as they, many of them have already preached and had uh, service this morning. Pray that they would be encouraged and uh, be, uh, would find rest in you and comfort in you. And we pray that in the week to come that they would um, have many great conversations where they'd be able to speak of your truth, encourage your saints, and uh, that they would be encouraged in the ministry that you have called them to be in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I did a little bit of introduction, but uh, this is uh, our family. Uh, I don't have my in-laws on here, but uh, Gene and Dina have been here for about two years. And uh, so Daniel here on the left grew up in the church, and he and Gabby got married about a year and a half ago. And then Connor and Gracie moved here just before we did in, uh, July, in June. And uh, they're the ones, if you see them today, they'll be the ones with the bags on their eyes because of this guy right here, uh, who's the newest member of our, our crew, about five weeks old. And so um, uh, they're living with us, with uh, their grandparents. We have four generations under the same roof, and we love it. Figure that's what they do in Europe, so why not do that here? Um, but uh, they're just, uh, they came in in the summer, and then we're looking it's kind of hard to find uh, housing at the beginning of the school year, so we told them, just hang out with us until uh, you get your feet under you, and, um, and then we'll uh, 
figure things out. So today, what I want to accomplish is uh, a little background information. Tim uh, dove right in, which is probably what I would have done with Galatians. But then after some of the questions that uh, came up last week, uh, Tim came to me afterwards and said, you know, I probably should have gone and did a little bit of background information. And I had already been thinking about uh, some of the questions uh, that had come up. And I said, you know what, I'll, I'll take care of that. So I'm going to give you a couple of resources here. And when I study a book, my ministry over the last 25 years has been to oversee the training center in Croatia primarily, but also served as an elder in our church, small church plant. Uh, we were talking this morning as we were preparing the Lord's Supper. We only need one plate, but we're at that point now where one plate may not be enough, and so you have to count uh, how many people are there and how many people you think are going to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, so we're a little bit different situation. But um, in the school, what I teach is methodology, how to study the Bible, and also exegesis, hermeneutics, and then how to prepare sermons from that. So I want to ask you, how many of you have had like a inductive Bible study class, a precept class, a Bible study fellowship class, anything like that. How many of you guys have gone through that? Okay, good. All right, so most of you will know what this is uh, when I hand it to you, like a, a study of a book at a glance. Uh, so this is Galatians broken up into the different paragraphs, and then you kind of... Uh, Look at what each paragraph says. And then you have questions in the back. What is said about the author? What is said about the recipients and their circumstances? Uh, what is said about the time and the date of writing? What is said about the location of the writing? And who are the key people mentioned? And I can send this to you if you're interested in this, having it digitally so you can type into it. I can send that to you too. But this is just something I always do when we're studying a book. And so I wanted to hand these things out. Can you hand these up? Thank you. Um, so just the first step when you're studying a book is to kind of make these observations and then go through each paragraph. And what I do with this uh, um, is I try to not come up with titles of each paragraph, but actually a full sentence that explains what that paragraph says and how that's different from any other paragraph. So it's not Paul prays, because that could cover a lot of paragraphs in the Bible. But Paul prays for whom and what kind of prayer he prays. But still try to keep it as, as simple as possible. And so you always are trying to, and I start every sentence with the author, Paul does this, Peter does this, John does this. But then I try to come up with a very clear verb. Is it a warning? Is it a prayer? Is it a uh, gives thanks? Uh, is he explaining something? Is he defending something? Um, so just to kind of get the content of the book and the whole flow of the author's um, uh, uh, argument into your head. All right. Thank you, Neil. So um, that is always the first step. And so this tool, and you don't have to do it, but if you want to, feel free. And like I said, if you want to send me an um, email, I can then send you the digital uh, Word file. But... Um, what I want to do today is talk about some of this background information. And it's really it's, it's because of some of the questions that were asked last week. Um, and in teaching the Bible, I love to teach how to study the Bible. Uh, and so I want to not just teach you the content of the Word, but equip you to find those answers for yourself. Um, 
Tim talked about last week how uh, Galatians is kind of a unique book. Do any of you remember uh, some of the things that he pointed out or remember from your study of Galatians? What what is unique about Galatians? And I'm interactive in my teaching. Not not when I preach, but when I teach, I love interaction. Unlike the others, it was to several churches, not just one church. Exactly. Uh, Verse 2, and that's one of the first things we would see, what is said about the audience, it's to churches in Galatia. Very good. All right, excellent. Anything else? Right. Not the warm greetings that and the prayer and everything that uh, Paul usually has in his letters. So uh, very unique in that sense. And, and Tim started looking at that. And that second paragraph is really a, a Paul pronouncing a curse on anyone who would teach a different gospel than what he taught. All right. Anything else? Maybe more from your study of Galatians or reading Galatians on your own. One very unique feature of Galatians. Didn't Timothy come from Galatians? Um, that's a good question. I think so, yeah, from the area. Very good. One thing that's unique about the letter is there's a lot of biographical information in from Paul's life. And because of that, you almost have to compare it to the book of Acts. And that's helpful in kind of understanding who the book is written to and what is the timeline. Galatians, together with Acts, gives us a lot of important information to help us understand the life of Paul, but also the life of the early church. So that's one of the things we're going to do today. Now, there's not a lot of controversy as far as critical attack on this uh, letter. Not a lot of question who wrote it. Paul. Everyone agrees that Paul wrote it. But there is a lot of discussion. It's one of the uh, seminary classroom discussions, debates, to whom is it written? And then what is the relationship of Galatians to Acts and how you explain that? And so um, that is helpful in understanding. It doesn't really change necessarily the interpretation, but the timing is important. And I will talk a little bit about why that's important a little bit later. Now, I'm not sure... All the things that Tim said, I won't say a lot about um, just the book in general, but I found a couple of interesting quotes. Uh, I don't know if Tim shared these with you. But um, Galatians is called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, or uh, some people even say it's the Declaration of Independence for Christians. I'm not really crazy about that phrase because independent from who, right? But it's really a, a founding document. Um, It's also called the battle cry of the Reformation, which we celebrated last Sunday, right? Um, Luther, the great German reformer, said that Galatians, the epistle of Galatians is my epistle, which is interesting because he called the uh, epistle of Luke a straw, an epistle made of straw that's almost worthless. Uh, James, I'm sorry, James. Um, He says, to it of Galatians, as it were, To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. So Catherine Van Buren, I think, was uh, his wife. Um, I'm not sure how Catherine felt about him saying this about the book of Galatians. But it was out of his careful study of this book um, that 
that Luther really began to understand God's plan of salvation, along with Romans, uh, grace working through faith, and and that really led to his step to uh, boldly uh, take his uh, 95 theses and uh, put them on the door of the Wittenberg Church. There's a great uh, older commentary written by Merrill Tinney, and he says this about the book of Galatians. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had this book not been written, because it embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism, and which launched it upon Christianity upon a career of missionary conquest. He wanted to say it was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because of its teaching of salvation by grace alone and became the dominant theme in the preaching of the Reformers. So very critical book, critical that we understand it. Um, And two questions were asked last week in Sunday school. And some of the people that asked them aren't here today. So unfortunate for them. But we'll answer these questions. Uh, to whom was this epistle ri- written? And specifically, what was the makeup of the Galatian churches? And we talked a little bit about that and went back and forth. Um, and again, like I said, Tim came to me afterwards and says, ah, I should have probably talked a little bit more about that uh, before we, I jumped in. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'd already been thinking about that. And I'll jump into it. Hopefully, Tim will agree with what I have to say because it is, uh, there are differences of opinion on these things. So I just want to briefly go through the whole epistle and see what is said about the audience. So we're answering the, one of the questions on the back page of this uh, form that I gave you. And then uh, I want to confirm this with an overview of Paul's uh, missionary journeys. And then if we have enough time, uh, I want to talk about Paul's life, but we may have to wait till next week to do that. Uh, the timeline and how Galatians and Acts fit together. But that's important because Paul already starts talking about this in the next passage uh, in verses 18 and 19. So if we don't get to it today, we'll get to it next week. Sure, absolutely. Uh huh. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start referring that in, to that in a, a moment, but absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, Come on in, Matt. Okay, so what is said about the audience? And I'm going to get you guys involved in this. So whether you have your iPad or your phone or your Bible, uh, let's talk about what is said about the book of Galatians in the book, about the churches in Galatia in the epistle. So first we've already said that it's written to churches, right? Uh, that's chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, what did we learn last week about the church? Do you remember? In verse 6, specifically, chapter 1, verse 6. What, is it, what does Paul say? Yes, absolutely. He says, I am amazed that you are already quickly des- deserting him who called you by the grace of uh, Christ for a different gospel. And it's interesting. If you, de- if you abandon the gospel... Paul says that's like abandoning God. I mean, there, there's you can't go halfway. It's either it's either accept the gospel and Christ in God or not. 
So to abandon the gospel is to abandon God. So there, it's a critical situation. The situation in the church at this moment is critical. So we see that. What else do we see? Um, what do we see in verses uh, chapter 1, verses 11 uh, and following? You guys read it and you tell me what you observe. Chapter 1, verse 11. Right, and uh, but what? How? How is? What's the relationship between Paul and the church? So he's saying, I preach, and he brought the gospel. Exactly. So Paul was the 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 tool by which they came to understand the gospel and believe the gospel. Now that's unique, and not unique. Most of the churches Paul wrote to, he had visited, but not every church. Right? Uh, he had never visited Colossae. Uh, that was probably uh, planted by someone who heard him preach in Ephesus. So not every single Paul letter that Paul wrote was written to a church that he had personal knowledge of. So we see that that was the case. Paul knows these people, knows how they received the gospel. Okay, what else? Uh, there's not a lot in chapter 2, but uh, what is uh, what do we see in chapter 3? And again, you can go back and... And verify and, and uh, look at this yourself throughout the week. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing that I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are being perfected by the flesh? So, we see that they are acting foolishly at this point, but if we continue to read, um, we see that they... What does verse 4, in fact, tell us? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? What does that tell us? How do they receive the gospel? With suffering. They paid a price for their faith, and now... They're acting foolishly and turning their back on that. They've forgotten very quickly uh, what they had uh, experienced, what they had seen. After it seems, if we continue to read in chapter 3, that they enthusiastically received this gospel. And now they're turning away. <coughs> yes? Is it, is it possible or can we know? Were they just giving into the pressure of the Jews? Absolutely. I think that's what that's what we see uh, as we continue through this, that there is a there is a group that is from the outside. In fact, if we look at uh, chapter five, verse seven, uh, why don't you read that, Troy? <clears throat> chapter five, verse seven, and, and I'll stop you when yeah. you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The, pers- the persuasion. I'm sorry. This persuasion did not come. Okay, what does this tell us? There is someone who is influencing, maybe the leader of a movement, but it seems that they're coming from the outside, right? And this is one of the things that always fascinates me about the New Testament uh, epistles. It seems that as soon as Paul is saying goodbye, <laughs> there's this group of vultures and coming through the back door, false teachers that are just coming in to, 
sweep up and take advantage of these new vulnerable believers. And it, it's, I mean, you see this in Corinth. You see this in uh, Colossae for sure. Uh, Paul warns Timothy about false teachers. It's, it's just amazing how quickly false teachers just descended upon the church. And again, we'll see the nature of these false teachers a little bit more. So, yeah, someone from the outside is putting pressure on them. Um, and we see more of that. Um, let's go back to chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 4 and 5, we already mentioned that they had suffered. They had seen miracles. It says that uh, in verse uh, chapter 4, or chapter 3, verse 5, um, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so they had seen some attesting miracles. Paul had demonstrated the validity of his message with these signs. So that would lead us to believe that this is very early in the Christian development because if you carefully read the New Testament, you see less and less emphasis on signs and miracles throughout the whole uh, first century until Tim, Paul's telling Timothy, you know, hey, drink a little wine for your stomach. I'm not going to come lay hands on you. Um, Paul talks about problems with his eyes. Um, he, he wasn't looking for miracles to, to solve these problems. So miracles were concentrated earlier in the um, century, but even throughout the, the century that the first that the new testament covers you see less and less emphasis on this but there were clearly miracles in that took place in galatia now chapter six uh verse six of chapter three who does uh paul start talking about abraham Abraham. and he goes down and he starts talking about uh sarah he talks about hagar now what does that tell us Right. But what does it tell us about the audience? uh, That they would at least understand Jewish background. And this is is crucial because the question was asked last week, are these Jews or are they Gentiles? And I even said, well, Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue. But then I had to think about that a little bit. Why? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 2. Who wants to read? Alan, you want to read chapter 5, verse 2? Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And uh, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13? Uh, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Okay, so Jews or Gentiles? Well, Jews would have been circumcised. Right. So he's speaking to Gentiles. So there is definitely a strong Gentile uh, uh, component in these churches. But there's also some pre-knowledge of the law, of who Abraham was, of who Hagar was, who uh, Sarah was. And it's not uncommon, as you read the epistles, to, that Paul would address one group within the church and then another group in the church. I think that we see that, for instance, in Hebrews, 
uh, I'm not saying Paul wrote Hebrews, but in the epistles, different groups are singled out um, because there's different groups in the church, different parties in the church are struggling with different issues. But certainly, there, are a, a, there was a strong Gentile component in this, uh, these churches. Yes? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly, and that's a critical uh, uh, incident in, in in the whole New Testament, and how that relates to the Book of Acts is something we're gonna we need to spend a little bit of time on. But yes, so there were two two clear parties in these churches, um, which was a huge huge threat to the early church and that's something i think is so hard for us to understand and and hopefully after today this is one of the reasons i want to wanted to do this study hopefully after today we'll understand a little bit better how how much of a threat how critical this whole question was of how the jews relate to the gentiles in the first century and on that's a theme we kind of, I think, overlook a little bit as we read the New Testament, but it's in almost every single epistle. It was a an issue that the churches wrestled with constantly, especially, again, don't forget, these are all first-generation believers, right? <laughs> they're, they're new in their faith. Uh, sometimes we read the epistles and we think, how in the world, what kind of church is this? Look at the list of sins that Paul is listing in these in these churches, but we forget that they're fresh out of, uh, many of them are fresh out of paganism. Those that were uh, uh, Jewish were coming out of a dead Jewish religion uh, where they didn't truly understand God's intent in the Old Testament. Okay, so back in chapter 3, we saw uh, from verses 6 on through to the end of the chapter that uh, there is some knowledge of the Old Testament that Paul leans upon. Uh, but chapter 3, verse 28, actually is very helpful. Uh, Neil, you want to read chapter 3, verse 28? Oh, okay. <laughs> you want me to hold it? Here, I'll hold it up. <laughs> there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what do we see here? What kind of group is this? What kind of congregation is this? Jews and Greeks. So there's different ethnic backgrounds. What else? Different economic backgrounds. And obviously two different genders and only two genders. All right. Now, but let's go to chapter 4, uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, who wants to read chapter 4, verses 8 and 9? Okay. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Slaves, you want to be once more. Okay, what does this tell us? What is the background? They were idol worshippers, right? 
And as far as uh, all evidence points to the fact that after the Jews came back from um, uh, their time in Babylon, uh, that they never went back to the idol worship that, that really they struggled with all the way up until that time. That doesn't mean they didn't have idols of the heart. Ezekiel talks about that phrase, idols of the heart, comes from Ezekiel. Um, but uh, So they were idolaters spiritually, but they were not worshiping idols. Clearly, Paul has in mind here that there were, again, a good constituency of Gentiles, former idol worshippers. Uh, either yeah, it was on this trip for sure. Yeah, we'll we'll come to that. But yeah, so uh, they they uh, called Paul Hermes and and uh, Barnabas was uh, Zeus. Zeus. Yeah, right. So um, yes, again, just try, uh, trying to and it was helpful for me. Just when we we say Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, right? And so we think he's just out, you know, at the barbecue restaurants, at the coffee shops, at the at the uh, uh, public square, witnessing to people who had never heard of anything. But that's not exactly accurate. Um, he was very much used by God to reach the Gentiles, but he started, as we'll see, in the synagogues. Uh, very clear methodology, strategy that he had. Um, let's see what else. Uh, verses 14, uh, 13 and fi- through 15 of chapter 4. Uh, who wants to read that? I, I mentioned Hagar and Sarah earlier in chapter 3, but that's actually in chapter 4. Uh, so Paul does talk in chapter 4 about the covenants and Hagar and Sarah. Uh, so again, assuming knowledge of the background of the Old Testament. It was in chapter 3 he's talking about uh, Christ leads us, uh, the law, the role of the law that leads us to Christ. So, uh, correction on that. But what does he say in uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 4? You know, it was because of a bodily ailment mm-hmm. that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given it. Okay, so what kind of reception did Paul have? Angelic. <laughs> they treat him like an angel. Uh, now, again, maybe uh, they treated him as gods, right? Uh, that may be a connection there. But, but Paul's point is, boy, there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, for the gospel, and now you're so easily turning him back. So it's not just that Paul is seeing uh, betrayal of the gospel, which is a betrayal of God, but Paul is takes us pretty personally, right? Uh, the way you treated me led me to believe that you really understood what I was talking about. How, how is it now that you're, that you're um, turning away from this? Uh, I already talked about chapter, the end of chapter 4 that, they, that Paul is, uh, refers to their knowledge of the Old Testament, to the covenants, to Hagar and Sarah. Um, Again, he doesn't go back and explain who these people are. He assumes that they have some knowledge of who they are. Uh, Alan already read that uh, in chapter 5, verse 2, that they're not uh, circumcised. Uh, We already read in chapter 5, verse 7, that this threat seems to be uh, from the outside. What about chapter 5, verse 15? 
gives us insight into the audience and the things that they're facing. What does chapter 5, verse 15 say? They're literally eating each other. They're attacking each other. And, and so, again, it helps us understand how critical the situation was that Paul is addressing. And then chapter 6, uh, verse 6 is interesting. Um, I was actually really surprised to read this. And this is another fascinating thing in the New Testament, how quickly uh, the churches, on the one hand, the, how much they struggled, but on the other hand, how quickly they developed in that apostolic age. What does it say in chapter 6, verse 6? What do we see? One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So what does that tell us? Teachers. There's already teachers in the church. And and Paul, from the very beginning, is teaching the church that it's responsible to to take care of those teachers, to, to reward those teachers, give them honor, which is a, which is a truth that is not... Uh, well-known in Europe. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but it's very common that churches don't support their pastors. Um, and yet, early on, first-generation believers, brand-new churches, and Paul's instructing, you need to honor these men and support these teachers. That had developed, again, very quickly, uh, which, is a, which is interesting for us to consider today. And then finally, chapter 6, verse 18, what do we see? As harshly as Paul has rebuked and corrected and warned, how does he refer to them? You are my brothers. Uh, And he calls them, um, I think I jumped over this, Uh, chapter 4, verse 19, he refers to them as my children, who I am, uh, as it were, uh, in birth pains, (laughs) trying to produce you. and so I'm very perplexed. I'm very confused as to how you've gotten to this point. So even just reading through the epistle, we get a, a much clearer picture of um, what the church looks like, what the situation in the church, what the issues they're facing, and what is the makeup of the church. So that's just from looking at the epistle. So I want to confirm some of this and give you Uh, A little bit of an overview about Paul's travels. So, remember, we know that Paul, uh, how many missionary trips did he take? Three. Three, exactly. Maybe, uh, I mean, he traveled a lot, but there were three distinct trips that were described in the book of Acts. And so this first map uh, describes the first two. Uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 4. We can move over to Acts now. Chapter 13, verse 4. Remember that Paul and who were together in Antioch? Barnabas, Barnabas right. And the Spirit led them, uh, classic missionary passage, uh, to uh, set them apart. Uh, actually, this is back in verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Still going by Saul, um, which is interesting. Um, for the work to which I have called them. And they fasted and prayed, and they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. And they began from Antioch. And so if I get my colors here, so blue shows their first trip. And this is covered in chapter 13 and 14 of Acts. So they go 
to the island of Cyprus. And then they go to uh, Perga, up to Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, And then on the trip back, which is orange, they turn around and go back and visit these places. And then they bypass Cyprus, coming back to Antioch. Now, what do we see on this map? Galatia. All right. And uh, Phrygia, which is mentioned here. um, Oh, no, it's mentioned later. Is would be kind of this area here. I'm not sure why. The problem with using maps is you can never find a map that has everything and every city on it that you want. But, um, but so this is actually a very helpful map in talking about who is this book written to. And uh, there's two different theories. There's the North Galatian theory and there's the Southern Galatian theory. And uh, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but so we'll, we'll leave that. But on this first trip, we see that they came... Uh, sorry, start here, came to here, and then go back to Antioch. But we see that this is part of what is considered Galatia. And this is what I believe uh, the book, who the, uh, I believe the book of Galatians is written to, is these churches in this area. Um, we'll talk a little bit about different views in a moment. Let's see. Um, and again, like I say, I hope I got to sit down and talk to Tim before he teaches again. Before I hand off to him again, make sure that he, uh, uh, that we're on the same page. But um, let's see here. Oh, now I know. Okay. But, okay, before we, let me back up one uh, moment. Before we even jump into the journeys, where else is Galatia mentioned in the Bible? That's important to know. We've looked at what is said about Galatia in Galatians, but where else is Galatia mentioned? So let's look at a a few uh, passages here. Um, Acts 16.6. Acts 16.6. Anybody want to read that verse for us? Mm-hmm. And Galatia, Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, so now this was the second missionary journey. Uh, it's uh, starting here, and so this is referring to this event right here. So on the second missionary journey, uh, Purple, they didn't take the boat. They went through Tarsus, Paul's hometown. They get to Derby, and they go through this region a second time. Um, and that's what's referred to. So this would be Galatia, and like I said, Phrygia is this area. So that was his second trip uh, that started in 1536. All right, uh, chapter 18 of Acts, verse 23, we have another mention of Galatia. Who wants to read that? Anybody? Uh, 18.23. 18.23. Okay, so, <laughs> so 
this is his third trip. So 1823 says that he had been there, Antioch, which is the home church where they were being sent out. And again, they go through um, the region of Galatia and Phrygia. And then on, and this is his longer trip all the way out to Corinth and back. Um, so three times Paul goes through this region. Uh, we know in the first uh, trip, he goes through this region because all those cities are mentioned. Whoops. Uh, the cities are mentioned. Uh, Antioch and uh, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Okay. A couple of more uh, verses. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. It does not. You're, you're, you're free and clear. This is much easier. I'll take it then. Okay, go for it. 16.1? Yes. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. So, essentially there was, uh, as the team went around, they were collecting uh, funds primarily for the uh, the victims of the famine that was in Jerusalem. And so Paul just says, look, you guys in Corinth, I have the same expectations as I had of the churches in Galatia, uh, so please collect for this offering. And then 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 10, um, I'll just go ahead and read this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Paul says at the end of his life, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, Crescens is the only mention of Crescens in the whole New Testament. We don't know what he was doing in Galatia. We hope he was faithful like Titus, not a deserter uh, like Demas. But then I had to ask this. Titus went to Galatia, who knows, uh, went to Dalmatia. Who knows where Dal- Dalmatia is? Serbo-Croatia. Ooh. Well, <laughs> no, he, he's close. He's half right. It's Croatia. I would never call it Serbo-Croatia. At least not with Croatians here. Or, or <laughs> Serbians would have no problem with that, but the Croatians would have a heart attack. So Dalmatia is the Dalmatian coast across from Italy, which is the jewel of uh, Croatia's uh, industry. Uh, and um, it's just a phenomenal coast, a thousand islands, beautiful, clear water, where the islands keep it uh, very protected. Just a beautiful, beautiful area. And so... and evidently where Dalmatian dogs come from. But Paul went through that area from Illyricum, which had been uh, further down in uh, in Albania. So he went all the way down the Dalmatian coast preaching and um, and then returned there. That would have been on the third trip. If, uh, oh, sorry, I'm not doing that on purpose. So that would have been, um, actually, no, it's not even shown. Yeah, yeah, further over. So that was when Paul Paul says that he did that uh, in Romans. So that would be that fourth trip that we don't have a whole lot of details about, but gives indications that he uh, traveled all the way to Europe, further into Europe. Um, and then finally, First Peter chapter one, verse one, and this is important and helps us understand what is meant by Galatia. Peter says. Uh, starts his epistle and says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. And so clearly Peter is using this as these are regional geographical regions, right? Um, and and that's the, the big question. Is Galatians written to ethnic Gauls or is it re- written to the region of Galatia? The ethnic Gauls would have been up here north of Lake Tuz in uh, cities uh, uh, like Ankara, um, Pessinus, and Tavium. Um, but it doesn't, there's no indication other than the potential that Galatians was written to group of ethnic Gauls that would have been in this area. There's no other indication, no individual, no ministry that's mentioned in that area at all or travels by Paul. There's one verse that says he, they came down from the upper region into Ephesus, but that, that is not decisive enough to, to decide that, that um, the letter was written up here. So we, most scholars would say that the book of Galatians was written to the churches in this area that Paul had visited, had firsthand knowledge of. Um, We also um, would have to say, if it was written to this area up here, it would have to have been later in the timeline of the first century, which causes problems. Um, And then finally, we know that there are synagogues and lots of Jews in the southern Galatian part of uh, the southern part of Galatia, whereas it would have been strange for Judaizers to travel past those Jewish communities up into upper Galatia where there's far more, far less Jews than try to sell circumcision to a bunch of Gentiles who had probably had very little knowledge of, of that tradition or practice. And so there just doesn't make sense that that would have happened. So, um, General consensus is that the letter is written to people that Paul visited in his first, second, and third trips. So he went back to these places many times. But then the question is, when did Paul write this book? And for that, we have to kind of begin to uh, put things together from the timeline. But again, just to uh, make sure that we understand... The constitution of these churches. I want to take a little bit of a sideline. I've already mentioned, and uh, can just uh, briefly go through the description of Paul's um, missionary journeys that start in Acts 13 and, and end in Acts 21. And you see that almost every single time he comes to a new town, it says he went to the synagogue. So. Uh, it says in Acts thirteen fourteen at the beginning, they came to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And then he came to Iconium in chapter 14, verse 1, and they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and of Greeks, uh, came to, again, the synagogue in 
Thessalonica in Acts uh, chapter 17. Uh, got run out of Thessalonica, went to Berea next, right? In Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Again, he goes to the synagogue. Even in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue. And then um, in Corinth, in 18.4, and in Corinth, actually, the leaders of the synagogue were saved. First, it was uh, in chapter 4 of chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 7, no, chapter 8, verse 8 of chapter 18, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household and probably was promptly fired. And Acts 18, verse 17, it says, And they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. So the first two um, leaders of the synagogue in Corinth that Paul met and witnessed to both believed. And then we see later in uh, uh, Acts 18, verse 19, he came to Ephesus and immediately went and uh, entered the synagogue. And... Um, left and then came back to Ephesus and returned to the synagogue. So it was Paul's practice, even though he was the Gentile to the Gen- uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, he still started his ministry in every town, essentially, in the synagogue. And in fact, in chapter 17, verse 2 of Acts, Paul says, They came to Thessalonica, and according to Paul's custom, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So this was, without question, his strategy when he would come to a new town to first preach the gospel, speak of the Messiah, let the Jews know in that town that the Messiah had come. Now, someone read for me Luke chapter chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And this is why I love this background study, because we see the connections, we see the big picture, we see that things aren't accidental. Um, but, uh, uh, and we also see that there's, there's a, a unity of the scriptures and a, a, a support, and as we would expect from one author, right, that there's, um, there's this intricacy in the scriptures. So Luke chapter 4, verse 16. What do we see? Uh, How far do you want us to read? Uh, just chapter 4, verse 16. Yeah, uh, Sheila was going to read it. So he came in the there he had been, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So Jesus was his custom to go to the synagogue, obviously, to, uh, to his, his uh, countrymen. And teach them the scriptures. And Paul, as a Jew, also following in the steps of Christ, did the same thing. My calling, everyone recognizes I was sent out to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But my first step is always to reach out to the Jews. Yes. Excellent passage of scripture for witnessing. Mm Mm-hmm. To go, right. We're not Sabbatarians. 
Exactly. But to gather with God's people, the importance of that. Absolutely. 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 And a reminder that evangelism needs to take place in the church, right? We have uh, people who aren't saved in the church, people who think they're saved in the church, and we have young people who haven't yet come to faith in the church. And so evangelism should definitely take place in the church. It shouldn't be the exclusive focus of the church, but it should take place in the church. Um, Now, Paul is an apostle traveling around. His primary ministry, his primary giftedness, calling is to reach the uncircumcised, the Gentiles. But he starts in the synagogue. Now, he's seen in Galatians that there was a uh, um, assumed background information for many in the church, if not all in the church, the Old Testament. And this is was kind of an epiphany for me this week. What is the nature? Who, who are these Gentiles that Paul is reaching out to? And so, um, if you look, or I'll, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Acts chapter 17, verse 17, uh, when Paul was in Athens, it says, He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearers, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So he did go out of the synagogue and minister in the public square. But it was the Jews and the God-fearers. And then if we look back at uh, chapter 13, verse 43, um, Paul came back to uh, on the next Sabbath to the synagogue. It says, And when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So these weren't necessarily just Gentiles on the streets or in the marketplaces. These were proselytes. Now, what is a proselyte? A convert to Judaism. But what was required of a proselyte? Okay. If you, uh, I did some research on this. And in the Old Testament, the expectation was that they kept the law, that they offered sacrifices, and that they were circumcised. But then in the New Testament, it seems that there's two different groups of people. There's the proselytes, and even one uh, dictionary makes the distinction. I, didn't, I wasn't able to go back and confirm this uh, specifically, but it says that the proselytes were the ones who went all the way uh, through with circumcision, but the God-fearers didn't necessarily accept circumcision. And the question really was, how close do you want to be in? But, but that, that helps us understand that even before the gospel came around, there were Gentiles in the synagogues who were still partially accepted. But they were halfway there. They were on their way, but they had not necessarily fulfilled all the requirements to be fully accepted as members of the Jewish faith. Who would be an example of that? A God-fearer. A God-fearer. Cornelius. Cornelius. Exactly. So let's look, and we'll do this very briefly, at Acts chapter 10, and we'll finish with this. 
Uh, Acts chapter 10. Remember Cornelius was the guy who was sent to him? Peter. And, and again, we read this. We're familiar with it. It's hard for us to understand how consequential this event was. So Peter is, uh, receives a vision from God to go into this Gentile's home without misgivings, any misgivings. But what do we know about him? Uh, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Or ch- chapter uh, 10, verse 2. Who wants to read that real quickly? This is kind of a uh, um, CVI of uh, Cornelius. What was his reputation? A devout man. Mm-hmm. So he is a he has a high high caliber, uh, very highly respected, uh, even loved by the Jewish community, uh, very generous to the Jewish community, uh, and Peter is told to go to his home. He was a man of prayer, exactly. And um, if you look, uh, you want to read chapter ten, verse twenty-two as well, John. So, Peter receives a vision, Cornelius receives a vision, so there's a lot of (laughs) uh, emphasis, a lot of push for this meeting to happen, and for a Gentile to be well-spoken of by the whole nation of Jews, is he's a pretty remarkable person. Yes? So, just to make sure I understand. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, correct. Uh, he was still an outsider. He was loved, respected the Jews, but was still an outsider. So, uh, very much so. Now, they meet. Peter preaches, and we know that the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles in a visible way. Um, and so, let's read uh, verses, chapter ten, verses forty-four and forty-five. It says, while Peter was still speaking. Again, chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And then, what do they do? They're baptized by the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit falls upon them. And well, the first thing they, they start speaking in tongues, and then what's the first thing they do uh, for them? It says, verse forty-seven: Surely no one can refuse water for these who have to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can they? And they ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ, and they stayed with them for a few days. So, group of Gentiles in a household hear the gospel, believe, visible. Proof of salvation through the uh, giving of the Spirit and speaking in tongues, and without any conditions whatsoever, they baptize them. Now, let's read chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. 
Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And then when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised were so happy that the Gentiles had come into the church, right? What does it say? Took issue with him saying, you went to the uncircumcised and ate with them. How dare you do that? Spirit comes upon them. Visible. No questions. They immediately baptized them, as they ought to have. And immediately, the first response when Peter comes back to um, Jerusalem is what? Uh, Peter, I heard you're hanging out with some uncircumcised people. What's up with that? You need to give an explanation. We don't understand how big an issue this was. From day one, from the prototypical Gentile, God-fearing, Jewish nation-loving, generous leader of the Gentiles, from day one of his salvation, there's already resistance. Wait a second. This this is... The traditionalists are coming out of the woodwork. No, this can't... This can't be what Christianity is. And so this issue starts simmering and boiling over from the immediate first... This is before the first missionary trip, right, Uh, of Paul. Before Paul's even saved, this is an issue. Paul had been saved, but he hadn't become a... uh, He was off... uh, receiving revelation from the Lord. So before Paul starts his ministry, this is already a huge issue. And that's what I wanted you to uh, understand today. This is why Galatians had to be written. This, the Judaizers, the traditionalists, the ones who said we, we cannot turn our backs on the law. You can't just accept anybody into the church without checking off this box, this box, and this box. This issue racked the church from its very beginning. And it's still in different ways, uh, affects the church. They had a right. It, yeah, they, they were clearly uh, were saved, <laughs> two distinct things, being saved prior to baptism. But um, the same issue uh, of traditionalism, legalism, racks the church. But when we compare whatever it is people are insisting upon in their freedoms today <laughs> with, with the issue of circumcision in the early church, it's night and day. This is not an issue about music preferences or uh, other things. This was tied up in their religion. Uh, the sacrifices, the meats, that was, that was a significant part of their religion. It wasn't silly, secondary, tertiary things that, you know, that people are so consumed with and eaten up with. And my Christian freedom, my Christian freedom, my Christian freedom. This was a threat to the gospel. And so as you read through Galatians, I hope you take some time to read through it uh, this week. Think about that. Think about the the division that was already existing. All right? Any comments, questions? You just see how this really world. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, Palestinians and, and Jews today, right? It's, there was a lot of animosity that had to be overcome. 
And so you go back and read Ephesians, and it talks about the wall that's being broken down. And, and the church was unique. The church was unique because Jews and Gentiles could be together and equal. No difference. That was what was unique about the church. And that is unheard of. You had to become a Jew. And now all of a sudden we're going to let people in who didn't become Jews? So, again, just like it's hard for us to leave all of our baggage when we come to Christ, it's, it's a process of sanctification. It was hard for them to, even harder in the first century, I think, than for us today in many ways. Were there Jews that were actively like, uh, evangelizing Judaism the way that... Because I'm not sure, yeah, I, mean, I, was, I, I hadn't actually put that together. Mm-hmm. So you had to come to them, right? The Jews were never commanded go. The nations were commanded come to to Israel, come to Jerusalem. You are a light, but you had to come to the light. And that's another huge difference in the church. The church is commanded to go. But in the Old Testament was come. Come to the nation. Come to the king. And, and, And that change in strategy was hard. For them, I mean, it was Peter needed <laughs> divine revelation, vision, uh, confirmation on the other side that that had happened on the other side to make that step. Weren't the Judaizers? They were people who believed in Jesus, right? So it's distinct in the sense that they almost did evangelism, mm-hmm. but yet their evangelism was yes, Jesus died, rose again, all of that, but we still have to follow the law. Right, he's our Messiah, but we can't leave behind our Judaism. Yeah. Right, so they're they're making a step, a huge step away from uh, where they were too, uh, previous. So a very tumultuous. I would assume uh, the in the church, uh, yes. So they would have known about Abraham. Right. So the, again, they're they're proselytes. They're possibly proselytes. They're certainly God fearers. They were Gentiles who were meeting Paul probably in the synagogue. I think the first layer, and maybe I didn't state that clearly, but the first Gentiles that Paul was coming in contact with in all these cities were Gentiles in the synagogue. So they were, they were after the synagogue meeting, talking, and there's these Gentiles going, you mean to tell me that I can be completely accepted if I believe in Jesus? And it makes sense to me. Uh, I have the Septuagint. I've been reading Isaiah 53 sounds a lot like what you're describing. Uh, so they're believing, and there's no boxes to check off. I just have to come by faith. Remarkable. And the Jews are going, like, well, I don't know about that. Just wait a second, you know. <laughs> so, again, this tension is very, very real. All right? Okay. Thanks, Chris. Sure thing. I hope it's helpful.